Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now, let's dig in. A few key court documents relating to the Brian Koberger case have been released recently, and they're causing a big stir. Koberger is the man accused of committing the vicious crime at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho on November 13th of 2022. That left Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Kernado, Ethan Chapin, and Maddie Mogan deceased, and Koberger has pleaded not guilty to the charges. One of the key documents was the prosecution or state's motion for a protective order to seal information about the investigative genetic genealogy, or IgG, that was used to match the DNA found on the snap of the leather sheath left at the crime scene to defendant Brian Koberger. Well, now we have Koberger's defense team team's response to the prosecution's attempt to keep some of that IgG information under lock and key. It's a filing called Objection to State's Motion for Protective Order, and in it, Koberger's defense team is objecting to the prosecution's request to protect the DNA information and to keep it from the defense team. In their objection, the defense revealed some startling news about the prosecution's case against Koberger, news that may undermine the state's efforts to prove Brian Koberger is the one and only perpetrator of the crime. In a bid to show all sides of this case, I want to share the arguments that the defense put forth, arguments that will likely be used during the trial to try and show the jurors that there is reasonable doubt about whether Koberger is the offender. The defense revealed that by December 17th of 2022, lab analysts at the Idaho State Police Lab were aware that two additional unknown male's DNA was found within the crime scene house near where the victims were located, and another unknown male DNA sample was located on a glove found outside the residence on November 20th, 2022, so eight days after the crime. The defense wrote, quote, To this date, the defense is unaware of what sort of testing if any, was conducted on these samples other than the STR DNA profiles. Further, these three separate and distinct male DNA profiles were not identified through CODIS, leading to the conclusion that the profiles do not belong to Mr. Koberger. End quote. This is shocking to hear because the defense is clearly saying that two of these unknown male DNA samples were found near where the victim's bodies were located, meaning the DNA wasn't located in places far away from the bodies. And the third sample of male DNA was found on a glove outside the house. Who wears a glove at a crime scene? Either the perpetrator or a crime scene analyst. 
Although you'd think that if a glove was found that had unknown male DNA on it, the investigators would test that DNA against all the male investigators and detectives who had been at the crime scene and who'd worn gloves. The defense, in my opinion, is implying that these unknown males who left their DNA could just as easily have been the perpetrator or perpetrators, or they could have assisted someone else in the crime. And the defense is also telling the court that they want to know who that male DNA belongs to. I can already hear attorney Ann Taylor during the trial bringing this up to create reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors, as in three other unknown males' DNA was found at the crime scene, and the investigators either didn't bother to find out who that DNA belonged to, or they checked it out, but didn't bother to let the defense know who those males are. I can see why Taylor and the other attorneys want to know what testing, if any, was done to this other unknown male DNA, what the results were, as in who does that DNA belong to. The question is, does the other male DNA belong to other guys who helped commit the crime, or does it belong to someone who happened to be inside the girl's house at some point, either prior to the crime or after it? Think about it. This unknown male DNA could belong to males who had attended parties at this very well-known party house, and if so, that unknown male DNA would have nothing to do with the crime. That DNA could also belong to males who were called over to the house by the surviving roommates after they realized that something horrible had happened to Kaylee, Maddie, Zana, and Ethan. Remember, the 911 call was made hours after the survivors woke and realized something bad had happened. And we've all heard that other students and friends were called over to the house before anyone dialed 911. You'd think the police would have gotten the names of all those kids who were at the house before the 911 call was made, and that they would get DNA samples from all the males. If the DNA belongs to some of these kids who came over after the crime, then the DNA has nothing to do with the crime. By the way, when I read about that glove found outside, I wondered if it was the one that Chris McDonough of the interview room noticed within the property when he and his wife visited it after the crime, but I don't think it is because Chris and his wife were there on Thanksgiving Day, if I'm not mistaken. As the defense writes about this, I can envision Ann Taylor during the trial arguing that the investigators, once they had Brian Koberger in their sights, were only focused on him and they didn't bother to ensure sure that the three other males whose DNA was found at the house weren't involved in the crime. The defense writes in their objection, quote, while this was ongoing, police were investigating many various possible suspects. Many of them provided DNA. At least one has had his DNA surreptitiously taken from a discarded cigarette. Many also had their phones taken and downloaded, end quote. I suspect that the various possible suspects the police were investigating were probably Kaylee's boyfriend, Jack DeCur, Maddie's boyfriend, Jake Schreiger, that young man named Jack Showalter who walked Kaylee and Maddie to the food truck early Sunday morning, and maybe some of the male neighbors who spoke to the media after the crime 
and also the person who gave Kaylee and Maddie a ride home, and probably the guy who delivered Zana's food order. The defense also discusses the white sedan that was seen on a camera located at 1112 King Road, and that the police first glimpse on that camera footage on November 18th of 2022. 1112 King Road is the gray house that has a white staircase leading up to it. It's right next door to the crime scene house. The defense wrote in their objection, quote, by November 25th of 2022, police believed the car to be a white Elantra and asked law enforcement to be on the lookout for one. Precisely how the police came to believe the car was in Elantra is unknown. A report from an analyst for the FBI dated March 21st, 2023, shows the analyst heavily relying on a video of a car heading in the wrong direction and at the wrong time on Ridge Road, end quote. I think when the defense says the white sedan spotted in that footage was heading in the wrong direction at the wrong time, they mean that a white sedan that was driving on Ridge Road not toward the crime scene house, but rather heading on Ridge Road away from the crime scene house. Ridge Road seems to be a section in the middle of Walenta Drive, and Walenta Drive is the road behind the girl's rental home where it is believed the perpetrator parked and then traveled on foot through the tree line at the rear of the property toward the back patio and in through those sliding glass doors that lead into the home kitchen. So the defense is questioning whether the investigators can be 100% sure that the white sedan captured on this camera footage is a white Hyundai Elantra and that it belongs to Brian Koberger. If the defense is referring to that widely circulated still shot of a white sedan, then it is true that you cannot see who is behind the wheel, you cannot see the license plates, nor can most people except perhaps the forensic examiners at the FBI who regularly use surveillance footage to identify the year, make, and model of unknown vehicles observed in the footage of one or more cameras during the commission of a criminal offense. So the prosecutors did lay out how they shared video footage of the suspect vehicle with the FBI analyst. This information was included in the affidavit for Koberger's arrest. Of course, the analysts got the year of the Elantra wrong because they first believed it was a 2011, 2012, or 2013 Hyundai Elantra, and later, upon further review, came out and said it could be anywhere from a 2011 to a 2016 Elantra. So I'm not sure if the defense will be able to tear apart how the FBI analysts came to believe the perpetrator's vehicle was a white Hyundai Elantra or not, but I suspect Ann Taylor will try this during Koberger's trial. And supporting the defense's argument that so far they haven't seen definitive proof from the prosecutors that the white sedan is a white Elantra, is this bombshell revelation from their objection document. They wrote, quote, there is no connection between Mr. Kohlberger and the victims. There is no explanation for the total lack of DNA evidence from the victims in Mr. Kohlberger's apartment, office, home, or vehicle. 
End quote. Those two sentences are shocking. They would appear to say that there's no evidence that Koberger ever contacted any of the victims via social media, via their cell phones, who knows. But you may recall that People magazine reported that a source told them that in late October of 2022, an Instagram account that the authorities believe belonged to Brian Koberger sent a greeting to one of the female victims victims, and when he didn't get a reply, he sent several more direct messages to her. Per the source, Koberger basically said, hey, how are you? but got no response, so he then sent the same message again and again. So is Ann Taylor saying that whatever evidence the prosecutor shared with her doesn't include this bit about Koberger direct messaging one of the female victims? And perhaps even more shocking than Taylor saying Koberger has no connection to the victims is the defense's statement that no DNA evidence from the victims was found in Koberger's apartment, office, family home, or car. Does that mean the prosecutors did not find the blood of any of the victims in Koberger's car or apartment? Or does it mean that they haven't yet shared evidence of a DNA connection like that with the defense team? Pretty much all the YouTube experts have been saying that there would have been tons of blood on the perpetrator when he left the girl's house, and he would have therefore gotten the victim's DNA in his car and likely in his apartment as well. Forensic pathologist and professor Joseph Scott Morgan has referred to the perpetrator's vehicle as a, quote, rolling crime scene and said that blood evidence can find its way into the tiniest of nooks and crannies, say on seatbelts, or within the seats of the vehicle. Everyone was sure DNA evidence would be found in that car. What the defense seems to be saying is there was no such evidence found in these places. So clearly the defense has a strong argument for reasonable doubt if it's true that no DNA from the victims was found in Koberger's residence, office, and car. But is it possible that Koberger could have stripped down out of the clothing worn during the crime, outside in the cold, dark night air, before getting into his Elantra. We know that the white sedan was captured, departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed and was observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. If Koberger is the perpetrator, could he have quickly removed the black clothing worn during the commission of the crime outside his white Elantra, then put the clothing with the red stuff on it in several heavy duty garbage bag that he may be stashed in the back seat or in the trunk and then sped off into the night and taken a circuitous route back to Pullman, Washington, and along the dark, vacant roads that he took, could he have stopped off at a body of water to rinse off his face hair, and body, and then change into clean clothing. The Palouse River flows next to Moscow, all the way to Pullman, Washington. It would not have been difficult pull over and get into that cold river to rinse off before heading into Pullman. 
Yes, it would have been cold, but that's a small price to pay for rinsing away evidence of a heinous crime that could put a person in front of a firing squad or in a prison cell for life. Law enforcement sources also told CNN that Kohlberger, quote, cleaned his car inside and out, not missing an inch, end quote, when he was home in Pennsylvania for the winter break. As a criminology student, Kohlberger would have known how to wash away DNA evidence, but the experts doubted he could rinse it all away. If there really was no DNA evidence, Koberger's car or home, that will be something the prosecution will have to work hard to explain. The defense goes on to write, quote, in essence, through lack of disclosure, and their motion to protect the genetic genealogy investigation, the state is hiding its entire case, end quote. The defense then writes, the state apparently thinks they need not explain how they came to think that it was Mr. Koberger's DNA on the sheath. Presumably, the defense is expected to accept at face value that the sheath had touched DNA just waiting for testing by all the FBI's myriad resources. Additionally, the defense is to guess whether the state focused its investigation on Mr. Koberger via a bizarrely complex DNA tree experiment or through its faulty identification of the vehicle involved in this case, end quote. Bottom line here, it sounds like the defense is going to fight hard for all the investigative genetic genealogy information from the prosecution and that maybe the prosecutor's case isn't 100% a slam dunk. All going to depend on how the evidence is presented at trial and whose experts are best able to explain away the lack of DNA evidence in Koberger's car and home, if that's really the case. Again, the prosecution hasn't shared all of its evidence. Or does the prosecution have stronger evidence of a DNA connection that hasn't yet been shared? You'd think that if they did have it, they would have listed it in the affidavit for Koberger's arrest, right? All I can say is that I can't wait for this case to go to trial. I don't believe Koberger is going to take a plea deal nor do I think he will confess to anything. Thus, a trial seems eminent. Note that a hearing on whether all materials and transcripts from the grand jury that took place in May will be handed over to Koberger's defense team is scheduled for tomorrow, June 27. I also can't wait to hear what comes out of that. So what do you guys think? Is the prosecution's case not as strong as they want us to believe? Is Koberger's defense team pointing out real cracks in the case? Or is this all about trying to sway public opinion before the trial takes place? Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, now do me a favor, smash that like button. It's a free way you can help me. Subscribe to the channel. That's another free way you can help me. And I'll see you next time.